You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 427 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, July 9th, 2022, and we've got a lot for you in this show about a number of things which I think may interest you, may amuse you, may inform you, may challenge you. Uh, I hope, I hope you will be the better for listening to this podcast. I hope you'll be encouraged ultimately, but that said, encouragement can take a lot of different forms. Sometimes what we need is to think more broadly about what that word means, encouragement. Is it not that we would get courage or that we would have our courage increased? But there, I think, the question should be, what should we be courageous about? I have heard it said that Integrity and virtue really have to do with courage. Do we have moral courage? And what does that mean if we don't know what is right? We don't know what is true. How can you have moral courage if you don't know what morality means? Or if your ideas about right and wrong are skewed and not informed by the truth? How can you have moral courage, since that is what integrity and virtue are about, how can you have moral courage if you don't know what is true? And we'll get more into that as we go along. I have a little bit of a back and forth with someone who's been commenting on one of my recent episodes at thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to share with you to make this point more clear. But first of all, let's talk about Elon Musk backing out of buying Twitter. News broke yesterday that Elon Musk is reneging or withdrawing his offer. And I am not so sure we need to be sad just yet. I am not so sure that this is the end of it. I don't think it is. It ain't over till the fat lady sings, as they say, which for those of you who don't know, this is a reference to opera. This is not just some odd, random statement about women who are overweight and how they may or may not sometimes like to sing at the uh, end of or conclusion of a matter. In fact, very seldom to never have I seen the conclusion of a matter literally end with a fat lady singing, except in the case of opera. But I digress. In an official statement released to the public, Musk claims Twitter has refused to produce all the documentation requested by him, fairly, I would say, despite having months to do so. They have had quite long enough to be able to produce the documentation he wants to see toward the end 
of establishing the value of the company. So to give you a little bit of an analogy, imagine you were buying a home and its list price is a bit high and everyone agrees on that. But you say, I'm making an offer and it's contingent on an inspection. And that's a very common thing. I've only bought one house ever, but that's a very common thing that you would have the house inspected to make sure that it's in good condition. Some things you might find when you inspect a house, you may find that there are termites who are eating away at the wood, which makes the skeleton inside the walls for the structure. If you have a bad enough termite problem, you could be looking at major renovations necessary to keep that structure standing. And if it's bad enough, you might just have the thing collapse and fall down, in which case you would want to bulldoze it, certainly not live in it until you had reckoned with the structural problems. For another example of something you might find, suppose you are buying a property and it turns out the foundation is not sure. It's cracked. It wasn't well poured. It is letting water in. And that water getting into the basement is causing mold problems. That's causing structural problems. And it's going to be expensive to fix. But depending on the sale price, you may still be willing to buy the property. And you still may be willing to do the work because let's say you really like the location or there are some really great things about the property, say its value from a symbolic standpoint. Maybe this is a historic property that has a lot of charm. Maybe it was designed and built by a famous architect. If you find a major structural problem where it looks better at first glance than it in fact turns out to be. We've just painted over major problems with the structure, which are going to require investment for this thing to be long for this world after you buy it. It's appropriate for you to either renegotiate the price or to be able to back out of the deal. If the seller is not willing to renegotiate the price or they're not willing for there to be a full inspection of all of the necessary systems, let's say structural or electrical or plumbing, which may indicate that there is something to hide. If they're not willing to allow you to inspect, that is just cause to back out. Now, if you aren't willing to back out and they know that, they will say, perhaps, no, I'm not willing to disclose that. And if you're not willing to back out, then what do you do except for say, okay, well, I guess I'll buy it anyways. But in that case, you're not really a very shrewd negotiator. And if you have money, you're probably not going to have money for long. And don't do it, right? Don't do it. You have to be willing to walk away. If you're not willing to walk away, you can't negotiate, period. So I predict that 
Twitter threatening to sue to force Elon Musk to follow through with the originally agreed price point. They're threatening that, but he's not going to pay the originally agreed upon price because it is not worth that anymore. And even just his having asked the questions and these questions now being in the public discourse will force Twitter to sell for less or he'll walk away and there will be a kind of justice done in Twitter having been exposed, as I see it, for what it is. That is to say, Twitter is an influence peddling machine built on false pretenses. Depending on how many of the supposed users at Twitter, of Twitter, uh, are bots, which is to say they're not real people, they are uh, AI. They are automatic accounts that have been set up in a phony way. They don't represent real people, but they can be used to bless or damn real people who are online. You know, if it turns out that, let's say, half of Twitter users are bots and that those bots are actually how Twitter makes money because wealthy people buy influence, powerful people buy influence or destroy their opponents online using bots, well, boy, howdy, if that's not termites, I don't know what is. If that's not a cracked foundation that lets the water in and now you've got a mold problem and the whole thing is going to fall down eventually, better that we would know that sooner than later. Just saying, better that we would be able to stop putting any stock whatsoever in who's got a blue check mark and how many followers they have or how few or how many comments are positive or negative. Positive and negative comments can be generated in a random way. AI is able to write essays whole cloth with a little bit of instruction. And you can't tell me that if we can write a whole essay, whole paragraphs by telling AI what we have for a subject and what we want to emphasize as far as keywords, what details are important. If if AI can write whole paragraphs and whole essays nowadays based on its ability to scour the internet, you can't tell me that AI is unable to generate a whole lot of nasty, ugly, mean comments on some conservative politician or uh, movie star's Twitter account, their post. Also, too, you can't tell me that AI is unable to write a lot of positive and complimentary comments on people you want to generate a buzz about and pretend are more popular than they are. This is manipulation. This is deceit and lying. And this is a great case study in why we shouldn't put so much stock in impressions and feelings and what seems to be popular at the moment. And if you found out that my podcast had millions of listeners every month, would it change the way you hear what I'm saying? That's an important question you should ask yourself. If you found out that my podcast was only listened to by you and one other person here in the U.S. every month, which is not the case, by the way, I can assure you that, but also not millions, <laughs> I can assure you that as well. But, you know, would that change, right? Like, 
that's what we're talking about here. That's what's going on here is the perception of popularity and that pressuring us to support certain things regardless our our interest, regardless the truth or goodness of them, and also to deny certain things. That what what is being pressured here? What is being pressured here is our affirming or denying certain claims, certain positions, certain proposals, certain political candidates who will be interviewed and therefore who will actually get support in the polls because people will know who they are, who will get primaried or will come through the primaries successfully, whose brands uh, at the marketplace are going to be bought and whose are going to be boycotted. All of these things, all of these things and more are what people have been paying Twitter uh, to influence one way or the other. So hats off to Elon Musk. I think he's playing a very savvy game here. I hope he does in the end buy it. I also hope he buys it at a much discounted rate compared with his original offer. And I hope that he overhauls it. I really do. But I think people who are freaking out right now would do well to look at Twitter trying to force him to buy it. And you should ask yourself, what's up with that? Why are they trying to force him to buy at the originally asked price still? I thought they didn't want to sell the company to him. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. Also, pay close attention to the negative press that Musk has been getting ever since he announced he was going to buy Twitter. He's been getting a lot of pushback from a regulatory standpoint and a lot of ugly attention from the media. And this is retaliation. They are trying to destroy him more broadly. And I think if they can try and force him to buy the company at the originally agreed to price, that will be of a piece with their broader attempts to make an example of him for all to see. But pray for him. He's not a good godly man in the sense of being a Christian and believing all the things that he ought to and living a life that is morally upright, generally, broadly speaking. News just broke that he impregnated with twins a top executive at, I think the name of the company is Neuralink, one of the companies that he owns. He's the richest man in the world. So he owns a lot of companies and he has a lot of things going on, but he impregnated one of his top executives uh, within a short span of time from when he uh, had a child with his uh, then-girlfriend, I guess they're married now, the artist Grimes. Uh, so he, he's not a he's not a morally upright character who we should look to emulate in uh, you know every way or every respect. I think what he's trying to do with Twitter is helpful and laudable and commendable, but that isn't to say that everything that comes out of his mouth or everything that we could look to in his example uh, is something to cheer and praise. And that was true of Donald Trump. Uh, it's true of a lot of men, but nevertheless, I hope that he is able to buy Twitter because I think a lot of good can come from it becoming a above board, free and open public square again. That's what it was originally billed as. And I think an argument could be made 
when a high proportion of users are bots and when Twitter's policy is to censor conservatives, it is not what it was billed as originally to the public. And I think there's a lot of fraud that has happened uh, where we are being sold out to very, very nasty, awful people. And uh, it needs to stop. But moving on in related news, <laughs> speaking of mean and nasty, ugly people, and I think the the kind of people who we should rather Elon Musk uh, run Twitter instead of, someone blew up the Georgia Guidestones. Someone blew up the American Stonehenge, as it's also called. Now, if you're not familiar, go look it up. You've probably seen it in the news in recent days. But this is a monument that was built back in 1980 by donations from a pseudonymous donor representing an anonymous group. And conspiracy theorists have, ever since these things went up, had a heyday with them. Uh, essentially, they are stone monuments, uh, shaped, or they were, I should say, they're, they're not anymore, but but shaped and oriented uh, so that they resemble a kind of ancient uh, Stonehenge. There are a lot of Stonehenges from ancient times. Stonehenge uh, in the UK uh, is not a one-of-a-kind thing. You can find hinges all over. Some hinges were made of wood. Some hinges were made of stone. But typically, they were, at least so the theory goes, places where rituals and religious services, pagan religious services, were held. Uh, recognition of various times of the year, solstices and whatnot, sacrifices potentially, possibly, to pagan gods, witchcraft, divination, uh, druidism, such like that. But this henge in particular is a kind of monument to either trolling those concerned about the New World Order or the New World Order. And it potentially represents or represented in past tense, now that it's been blown up, a statement of purposes and intentions by those who steer the New World Order. Now, what is the New World Order? Well, that is the post-war consensus, as it's also known. That is this idea that we need to reform humanity post-World War I, World War II, so that we never have another disastrous, monstrous war like those ever again. This is where the United Nations, and before that, the League of Nations came from. Actually, interestingly enough, and I'd like to research this further and talk about it in an upcoming podcast, but this is also where ecumenism in modern Christianity got its roots. Ecumenism in the past century was inspired by the League of Nations talk. The World Council of Churches was inspired by the League of Nations. Let's set our differences aside between the various uh, Christian denominations and traditions, the major branches of Christianity as they're known, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Protestantism, and let's all affirm one another as Christians and let's focus on what we agree about and let's have, at first, 
dialogue between those who claim to be Christians. And then increasingly, as the decades have rolled on, let's have interfaith dialogue between professing Christians or those who claim to be Christians and Muslims and Jews and others as well. And we'll say, we all worship the same God and let's bury the hatchet and let's all pray together for world peace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Georgia Guidestones, being of a piece with that, P-E-A-C-E and P-I-E-C-E, both, the Georgia Guidestones are disturbing because they are an inscription of intentions in stone in several modern languages. Ten commandments of the New World Order are what are inscribed on them. The first of these is, for those unfamiliar, to maintain Earth's population at or below 500 million. Just so you know, Earth's population is, I think at last count, over 7 billion, with a B. For those of you who are good at math, 7 billion is more than half a billion. So half a billion, in order for us to maintain that, we would have to get to it. In order for us to get to it, something has to be done about the other, oh, I don't know, six or seven billion people who are surplus. You have to get rid of them. You have to dispose of them. You have to weed them out. And then the question becomes, how do you, how do you decide who goes? And also, how are you getting rid of them? Are you getting rid of them by rounding them up and putting them to death, putting them to sleep, putting them in gas chambers, putting something in their water supply, putting something into the food? Are you getting rid of them just by keeping them from reproducing, sterilizing them so that, you know, it'll take a while, but if they're not having children, then they won't be around in a generation or two. Is that how you're going to get to 500 million? You know, these are questions that I don't have answers to that are firm. Many people have speculated about all working off of the assumption that this is not a hoax. This was not an effort at trolling. This is not just some fringe radical group that wanted to steer and guide, but they don't actually belong to the elite cabal of the New World Order, as it's known, as it's referred to. But nevertheless, what we do know, we do know that these George Guidestones, uh, they were a real thing that was erected. We do know that. We may not know precisely who had them built and how much power that group uh, actually has. We may not know the answer to some of the implicit questions which come up from reading these Ten Commandments. But what we do know is that the Georgia Guidestones were erected uh, about 42 years ago and also that they were just blown up. We do know that, right? We do know that. So also we know that whoever it is that bombed the Georgia Guidestones about 4 a.m. one morning uh, in the past week, that person is being sought and they're being called a domestic terrorist. And I guess the big question in my mind would be, 
are they a domestic terrorist for blowing up this monument? Uh, if this is legit, if it, if it's a legit monument where the intention is to kill off six and a half, seven billion people, men, women, and children, you know, is this blowing up the monument terrorism or has the monument itself having stood with a kind of legitimacy for four decades, has the monument itself been a kind of terrorism, a kind of implicit threat, which in the absence of uh, repudiation by the powers that be, could be interpreted as at least plausibly what they want, what they intend, especially when you see some of the other commandments talking about living at peace with nature and balancing ourselves with nature. And then you start listening to all of the talk over the past several decades about climate change, global warming, and then COVID comes along. You know, COVID, I think, changed a lot of people's minds about what may or may not be uh, a capability morally where our elites are concerned, where the establishment, politicians and academics and business leaders and thought leaders are concerned. What we would have supposed they were capable of is forever changed by how they approached the COVID lockdowns and masking and vaccination and also any questioning of the official policy online. We do know that. We may not know who had the Georgia Guidestones built, but we do know that our elites around the world showed themselves to be diabolical over the past several years through COVID. And there are a lot of questions there as well, which some think, whatever you want to make of this, some think add up to COVID potentially having been released with the intention of killing off six and a half to seven billion people on earth so that we can get to that 500 million. I know it sounds crazy, but you got to admit, it sounds less crazy now than it did five, 10 years ago. It sounds less crazy now. So also the COVID vaccination, this is a big question that people have. However you answer it, what is up with the effect on people's fertility? What is up with the way COVID vaccination affects fertility? Is that potentially a sign that the COVID vaccination was intended to sterilize people who have been deemed by the global elites to be the germplasm of societies? It's just an extension of the eugenics movement from a century ago. They never really gave up on eugenics, even despite what came to the public attention uh, after World War II, after the liberation of concentration camps uh, by the Allies, especially the U.S., U.S. forces. You know, the eugenicists, they never really, really, truly gave up on their idea of making a more perfect humanity. They just changed their approach. They changed their tactics and their messaging. They rebranded it. But more on that, maybe in the future, we'll see. I try not to get too much into those sorts of discussions because they're highly speculative and only the good Lord really knows all of what's going on. And also at the end of the day, something important to remember with regards to these things is even if the conspiracy theories about 
the Georgia Guidestones and the New World Order and the Illuminati and the lizard people and all this stuff, even if those conspiracy theories are right, we don't need to, as Christians, be afraid. In fact, we're told, I think the number is 365 times in God's word, fear not, fear not, fear not, be not afraid. We are told in the New Testament by Paul that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so we do well to be careful, to tread lightly with conspiracy theories, whether they're true or they're not, because the big idea is not to be afraid. The big idea is to trust the good Lord, because the good Lord, God Almighty, is sovereign, and he will accomplish his purpose. He will fulfill his promise. He will be faithful to his people. And there's nothing that even the most powerful, wealthy, arrogant men, however they combine themselves together and conspire and employ technologies and manipulations, there is nothing any of them can do ultimately to overcome or thwart God's plan and purpose. Actually, he who sits in heaven laughs and holds them in derision, the psalmist says, because they think they can thwart God. They think they can defeat his purpose. Jokes on them in the long run. We know the end. We know the punchline. So we can smile and we can mind our own business and we can look to God for purpose and belonging and peace regardless. But moving on, as reported by Not The Bee, a certain Shane Morris took to Twitter yesterday to explain how Christians have a long, rich history of engagement in politics, despite what progressives and, as Doug Wilson likes to call them, evangelifish, I don't know if that's as nice as it should be, uh, but it might be as true as it needs to be. <laughs> Despite what progressives and evangelifish and pacifists in modern times, especially of the ecumenical variety, will tell you, Christians don't need to be above politics, particularly in relation to the abortion debate. But I'll read for you this Twitter thread from Shane Morris, because I think it's great. And I think he makes some really excellent points. And I think we would all benefit from reading it. He writes, and this is a quote, he's quoting those he is responding to before he responds to them. Christians should stop seeking political control and do gospel evangelism stuff. Because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And early Christians didn't take over Rome. They built Christ's invisible kingdom in hearts, end quote. He says, seeing variations on this over and over, and I agree. I also am seeing variations on that over and over, and I have been for years. Uh, this is now seven years, by the way, seven years of blogging and podcasting in earnest, and I have seen this again and again and again, and quite frankly, it drives me crazy. But some additional thoughts from Mr. Morris, and I quote, Obviously, it is about abortion. It is an awkward attempt by certain left-leaning aspirational types to appear uber-spiritual and above the fray. The problem is, it's nonsense from start to finish. <laughs> Let's count the ways. 
One, no major branch of Orthodox Christianity thought being apolitical was a good thing until the Radical Reformation and the Anabaptists. Roman Catholics and magisterial Protestants agreed on shaping civil laws with Christian morality. For the latter, it's literally in the name, magisterial, which is related to magistrates, by the way. Fun fact. Number two, Jesus didn't mean my kingdom is not of this world the way you want him to mean it, i.e., my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. He is talking about origin, not impact. Later in the same breath, he changes the preposition of to from. Read the passage. His kingdom is not from this world, but it certainly will and does impact this world and its laws. Which leads to point number three. The early Christians manifestly did take over Rome. In AD 380, after centuries of failed persecution, Rome declared Christianity the empire's official religion. This dominion was, of course, accomplished through spiritual weaponry, yes, chiefly evangelism and apologetics, not political revolution, but nobody is advocating for revolution even now. We are advocating for being good neighbors, which includes making and enforcing just laws. And in the meantime, we Christians engage fervently in and with this world to make up for the carnage of bad laws. In that, we are following our forebears who, are you ready for this, spent a lot of time rescuing discarded babies from death in Rome and were against abortion. So yes, Christians should and must be involved in politics. And yes, we should and must advocate for and craft just laws that promote the good of our neighbors including the unborn. And no, this is not in the least incompatible with evangelism or with Jesus' kingdom, which is not from this world, but emphatically will transform this world until the heavenly Jerusalem descends like a helicopter on earth and Jesus sits down on the throne of David to receive the nations as his inheritance, as he was promised by God the Father in Psalm 2. And the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, I read this for you, and a lot of you, if you are not this person, you know this person who is the super-spiritual, uber-spiritual Christian who would say Christians shouldn't get into politics because it's a distraction from the gospel. And I actually was watching a really, really great discussion between Gavin Ortland, Baptist minister, three generations high profile, at least at least three generations high profile Christian ministry in America. Gavin Ortland, author of Finding the Right Hills to Die On, also retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, which I'm reading right now with a couple of friends from church. Gavin Ortland has this great discussion with Jordan B. Cooper, both of them PhDs for whatever that's worth, blah, 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 blah. Uh, But one of them a Lutheran, one of them a Baptist, talking about infant baptism versus credo-baptism. And one of the things that Jordan B. Cooper says, and Jordan Jordan B. Cooper's got some great stuff out on YouTube that I'm just now getting introduced to, thanks to my neighbor, Two Houses Down, J.P. Chavez. Jordan Cooper, I believe, runs a podcast called Just and Sinner. I believe that's the name of it. 
He's been doing it for about as long or longer than I have. But Jordan Cooper makes a point as he's doing kind of the intro to what we should make of disagreements about baptism. How seriously should we take disagreements among Christians about baptism? And he makes this great point where he says, you know, a lot of Protestants increasingly say, well, we shouldn't get into disagreements about baptism, say, pedo versus credo baptism, because we need to focus on the gospel. And his argument, his pushback would be, no, baptism is a gospel issue. But what I don't mean by that is you either are or are not a Christian, depending on whether you agree with me about baptism. It is a gospel issue, even if we disagree. And our disagreeing should not mean that we don't get into it. This is something that has been smuggled into our definitions of unity, thanks to ecumenism. It's of a piece with trying to pursue world peace by watering down what everybody believes, what everybody thinks, even to the point of abolishing the idea of gender in our day. That's how wild and crazy this has gotten. And it is in the church as well, this idea of abolishing gender because, ah, well, look, it says neither male nor female. Aha, see, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No, no. Study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed. You should be ashamed, and you have obviously not studied to show yourself an approved workman. You are not rightly handling the word of truth. I award you no points. (laughs) And may God have mercy on your soul. (laughs) But here also, Christian engagement on the abortion question. If we want to point to Christians in the early church being persecuted, we do well to read Eusebius and the church histories. Read Eusebius who is writing as a contemporary both to the persecution pre-Constantine and also to the protection of Christians and even the praising of Christians in Christianity under Constantine. Read Eusebius. Read Augustine, for that matter. Speaking of Augustine, Augustine writes this ginormous apologetic in the city of God tackling mythology and history and paganism, and politics head on because the claim is being made that Christians are actually the reason why the Roman Empire has fallen to the barbarians. He doesn't just write a little tract and pass it out to a couple of friends privately. Hey, you know, just so you know, like, I don't want to make a big fuss about it, but, you know, just, I, I heard you were asking some questions about this. No, he writes the city of God, which on Audible, I think took about 50 plus hours to get through at normal speed. I didn't listen to it on double speed, but it was like one and a half times speed. And sometimes I slowed it down to one time speed. But I think the normal rate for City of God on Audible, the version that I listened to, was over 50 hours long. The brother had some things to say. And yet in our day, we, we content ourselves with very superficial things superficial statements which are way too convenient, which add up to actually us not being quite so concerned about the kingdom of heaven as we are concerned with not being persecuted ourselves, not being excluded, ostracized, not losing our jobs, not losing friendships. We don't want to suffer at all. We are not picking up our crosses and following after him. And Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He says, if you are not willing to pick up your cross and follow after me, you are not worthy. You are not worthy to be called my disciple. No. And that's something we do well to think about 
I would say even before we get into over eager calls for unity with anybody and everybody who wants to claim to be a Christian, you can be a Christian and disagree about credo baptism and pedo baptism. I'm convinced of that. And I agree with Gavin Ortland's caution that we should be humble because it's complicated enough. We should be humble and patient with one another because it is hard to understand. And it's easy to see how somebody could come to a different conclusion, even if you're quite clear on where you stand. But Christians getting involved in politics, that's nothing new. That's been since the beginning. How we engage in politics, that is very important. But that we should engage in politics cannot be disputed when you look at church history. It just can't. And you can't point to abuses and say, ah, see, this person did it wrong, therefore none of us should do it. That's a very immature and foolish position to take. It's very foolish. That is not God-honoring. That is the functional equivalent of burying your talents in a field because you know that your master is a hard man who reaps where he doesn't sow. No, no. The master who is analogous to God in the parable says you wicked servant and takes away all the talents and God forbid that be us and God take away everything he's given us, everything he's blessed us with because we were wicked servants who buried our talents in the field. No, not I says me, not I. In related news, speaking of apologetics and claims by pagans that Christians are the cause of all the problems in the world, Club Schadenfreude commented on my recent book review of G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man, which, by the way, is also an apologetic aimed squarely at his nemesis intellectually, H.G. Wells, and more specifically, The Outline of History by H.G. Wells, nonfiction historical overview from an evolutionary standpoint, from a godless standpoint, rejecting Christianity, proposing an entirely uh, other explanation for where we come from, how we got here, what we're about, who are we, where do we come from, where are we going. Very important anthropological, ontological uh, differences between the outline of history and the everlasting man. But I did a book review, and it's a great, great book. You should definitely check out G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man, even if you're not a Roman Catholic no, that is not a argument for ecumenism. But yes, we can benefit from the arguments he makes, even while disagreeing with him, just like I can benefit you by reading some of the comments from Club Schadenfreude and also my responses, of course. Club Schadenfreude commented three days ago, the problem is that most Christians aren't doing good at all. They are harming people and are upset that there are false claims about a God agreeing with their personal hates are being ignored or shown to be made up fantasies, which is just trolling, by the way. Don't feed the trolls. But what does the proverb say? Don't answer a fool according to their folly, lest you be like them. Answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes. So my response was very short, very brief. I wasn't going to waste a whole lot of time on this, but I asked, how do you know? Right? How do you know? You're making some big claims here. How do you know? Club Schadenfreude responded just yesterday. How do I know that the problem is that most Christians aren't doing good at all? They're harming people and are upset that their false claims about a God agreeing with their personal hates 
are being ignored or shown to be made up fantasies, which that's annoying, by the way. Just Club Schadenfreude, if you're listening, that's annoying. Yes, you literally just copy pasted your entire first comment. Yes. Anyway, not to be irritable, but that's irritating. They continue. Hmm. When Christians lie and claim LGBT plus folks, uh, you forgot the Q and P, P for pedophile, right? Uh, When Christians lie and claim LGBT plus folks are evil and deserve death, when Christians try to keep rights for themselves only, when Christians victim blame people to try to hide when prayers to their God don't come true, when Christians attack each other and claim each other heretics and Satanists, typo there, Satanists. (laughs) That's how I know. My response. For you to say that there is such a thing as lying must mean there is such a thing as the truth. But again, how do you know what the truth is? For you to say that Christians are not doing good at all, or that it's a lie to say that LGBT plus folks are evil, that implies that there is such a thing as good and evil. But again, how do you know what good and evil are? As for the claim that Christians are trying to keep rights for themselves only, I would ask for an example of that. I'm not familiar with any instances in which Christians have tried to do this, but I know history to be full of examples of just the opposite. Christians insisting on human rights for all based on what God's word says is true and good, regardless whether everyone concerned is themselves a Christian. You say Christians try to blame victims so they can hide when their prayers don't come true. You may need to unpack that for me to be sure what you mean. Are you referring to people who are promised healing if they pray and believe, then accused of not having enough faith when their prayers seem not to be answered in the way they'd hoped? As for the last bit about Christians attacking one another or claiming one another are heretics and Satanists, I'll give you an analogy to make a point that's important to remember here. The fact that there is such a thing as a counterfeit bill does not mean that real money doesn't exist. If anything, the fact that there are counterfeits only makes sense if there is such a thing as a genuine article. But if someone tries to pass counterfeit money, we don't say that either the counterfeit must be real or that there is no such thing as real money. The fact is that not everyone who claims to be a Christian is one. That holds true for victims and quote-unquote good people as well. It's not enough to claim that one is such a thing to make it so, but I would point you back to your first accusation against Christians that they lie. The test has to be to weigh and measure claims and actions against an objective standard of goodness and truth. For all true Christians, that standard is Christ as we know him in the Bible For all true Christians, that standard is God's word. But you can't both condemn Christians for being liars and evil while at the same time denying that there is any such thing as truth or goodness, nor can you blame Christians when they're faithful just because some claim Christianity while behaving and talking in evil, untrue ways. Club Schadenfreude responds. Raffle, which is rolling on the floor laughing, by the way. Oh my. Yep. I can say that there is a truth and have facts to support my claims. Sadly, Christians have nothing to support their claims about their many, many claims about what their God really wants. And I could read this whole thing and also my response as well. You can go to this post at the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show to read it for yourself if you're so inclined. But that is the response and that typifies the rest of the response as well. 
just this contradiction. Just, I know you are, but what am I? Kind of rhetoric, which is not very substantive, honestly. It's just malice. Interpret this as, I hate Christianity, and I hate you for being a Christian, and I just want to abuse you, and I don't want to reason with you, and I don't want to answer your questions. Now, this is what the scriptures mean when we read Jesus saying in the Gospels, don't cast your pearls before swine, don't give to dogs what is holy. It's a waste of time, as you will see if you read through the back and forth. I don't regret what I said, but nor either is there much point in trying to persuade Club Schadenfreude, because this is personal. This is not a matter of principle. It's personal, and there is no persuading. It would take a miracle for this person's heart to be softened and for them to be sensitive to the truth. I said my piece. Their response was vitriolic and acidic and acerbic, but not in a good way. So all I will say in closing on that for the time being is I feel confident in answering accusations like these, that I stand in a long, rich tradition in church history that dates back at least to the fourth century AD with Augustine and his writing of the city of God. In fact, I would say that this podcast and my blogging the past seven years also stands in that tradition. If you read Augustine's City of God, he is happy to talk about mythology and poetry and even, yes, sex in a very candid, matter-of-fact way. He's happy to talk about the history of the Trojan War and to draw points from that and arguments from that and apologetics from that in a very similar way to the Apostle Paul casually quoting Greek poets and philosophers It does not mean that you approve of all that you are referencing or that you agree with all that you're referencing. That goes without saying when you give the broader context. And in the case of Augustine, and in my case as well, or in your case as well, we are told to contend for the faith. That does not mean we should be contentious, but so also we don't want the pendulum to swing so far the other direction that to contend for the faith is regarded as contentious in general, uncritically. It is necessary for us to obey where we're told to contend for the faith, even as it is necessary, and for the same reasons that it's necessary for us to not be contentious. Speaking of, last topic for this episode, and then I got to run, in part, out of consideration for your time, in part because I've got work to do today, and far more will be said about this. This is not the last you've heard once I finish this episode. Rest easy. I'd like to respond to a certain YouTube video posted on Thursday of this week by the YouTube channel Fighting for the Faith, in which Chris Roseborough, Phil Johnson, and Justin Peters, in that order, top to bottom, Way in on, as the title of the video puts it, The Fall of J.D. Hall. Uh, interestingly enough, before we get into the substance, the comments on the video are turned off. So not only can you not comment, which I wouldn't have wanted to comment on their video publicly, except for here. Here is where I will comment, because here I am sure my comment will not be deleted 
<laughs> just because they might dislike it. But sometimes it is fun and interesting and thought-provoking to read others' comments and to see them noticing certain things or asking important questions. And when you turn off the comments, it uh, does it, it does prove that you are really closed-minded. Now, you can't get much more closed off from being examined yourself than turning off the comments on your video. I hate it when this happens. I hate it when people do this. I think it's bad. You know, if you've got abusive people, deal with them on a case-by-case basis. But you are throwing out the baby with the bathwater to turn off comments on a video like this. And yet, as is demonstrated by my recording this podcast episode and you listening to it right now, I will comment here to say that I have questions. I have questions for these three men and for all those like them who have in the past affirmed Jordan Hall in various ways. Some of these claims made in the video, I have to just take their word for it. I have to take Chris Roseborough's word for it. I have to take Phil Johnson's word for it. I have to take Justin Peters' word for it, that they spoke privately with Jordan Hall. And I'm not saying that I take their word for it as if to imply that they're lying. I will assume that they are telling the truth, that they spoke with Jordan privately over the course of the past several years. I will take their word for it. But when I say that I have to take their word for it, what I mean is if there was a public instance of their warning Jordan, pleading with him, encouraging him, rebuking him, correcting him, warning others to be very careful about following his example or trusting him too much in the claims he was making publicly, repeatedly, daily. If there was a public warning to him or to their followers, they certainly don't reference it here. And I think that if there were a public warning they had issued, they would have referenced it here. And so it's an argument from silence, I admit, but then that is my question. My question is, when did you publicly correct him like you correct others? I don't follow Chris Rosebro. In fact, I didn't even know he existed until very recently. Phil Johnson, I had heard of. I know that he is closely affiliated with John MacArthur, and I know that John MacArthur is about as close as you get to an American pope in our day. He's about as close as you get to a pope for many Baptists and Reformed folk. John MacArthur, I have not been a great admirer of, and yet I want to be respectful of John MacArthur even where I disagree and I believe that I am correct to disagree, and I should disagree. Phil Johnson, I was more familiar with, but Chris Rosebro, I didn't even know the name of prior to the past couple of weeks. Uh, same also with Justin Peters. Justin Peters, I guess, Chris Rosebro, I guess, have some pretty big followings online uh, where they do the discernment ministry blogging thing and the discernment ministry video blogging thing and podcasting thing. And as is demonstrated by their showing up together on this video, they find common cause. 
with one another, where they are engaging in polemics online. Now, what is polemics? Let's define our term real quick. According to Oxford Languages, a polemic is a strong verbal or written attack on someone or something. Another definition is that polemic is the art or practice of engaging in controversial debate or dispute. So that's what that is. And these men are known for it. And Jordan Hall was known for it. And insofar as Jordan Hall was known for it through pulpit and pen and protestia and the polemics report, and he was infamous across the U.S., when years ago they aligned themselves with him because they were in the same business and they agreed doctrinally on the important things, where they were cut from the same cloth and these men, Chris Rosebro, Phil Johnson, Justin Peters, recommended Jordan's work and associated themselves with him as they attacked others publicly. My question would be, if you became concerned that he was not stable, that he was being ungodly, that he was disqualifying himself as a pastor, even much less as a polemicist in the way that he was going about it. If you had those concerns and you say now in this video that you raised those concerns with him privately, you warned him directly, bluntly, several times over the course of several years, or as Phil Johnson admits, you stopped referencing his work, you stopped telling people he had some good things to say on these things, on these topics, on these questions, on these issues. Why did you not warn your followers? Why did you not do more? Also, another question for these men, do you not realize that your silence after having aligned yourself with him for a time and everyone who was familiar with him being told that he got a kind of legitimacy because of his relationship with you men, do you not know that you helped to create Jordan Hall? You enabled Jordan Hall through your silence as much as from your affirming him for a time. If it was obvious to you that he had disqualified himself, was disqualifying himself, that he was in sin, why did you keep on making videos going after Creflo Dollar and T.D. Jakes? Why did you keep on doing videos about Benny Hinn and Russell Moore? Why did you keep going after those men? And why didn't you say anything publicly about J.D. Hall? And also, too, in the absence of a recognition publicly that you should have, what are we to make of your video here, The Fall of J.D. Hall, except that you're doing damage control on your own reputation, your own ministry, distancing yourself from him. You're spinning your previous association with him to try and insulate yourself from the same criticisms which were leveled at him for a long time. As for timestamps, we have none for your private conversations with him over the course of several years, which again, I take your word for it. I believe you that you spoke with him privately. The problem is we have no timestamps. We don't know when and what precisely you said. And yet I wrote not one, but two blog posts 
in which I warned that exactly what is happening would happen. Namely, that good causes, valid questions and criticisms, valid causes and positions would be sullied. Their reputations would be sullied by association with J.D. Hall. I warned Richland County Republicans and Tanya Rost. I warned her directly, privately first, and then when she told me that I was being juvenile, she didn't have time for that, I warned her publicly as well on my blog five years ago. And then again, two and a half years ago, when the Sydney Herald in Sydney, Montana, referenced my first article to do exactly what I had warned about, exactly what I had warned would happen, I took to the blog again. I took to On the Rocks again. And Chris Rosebro, Phil Johnson, Justin Peters, did you not read either of my warnings? I was writing as someone who had attended his church, whose family had been in his family's homeschool group. We had them over for dinner. They had us over for dinner. We went out for Pizza Hut. I knew several, not just a few, I knew several elders and deacons who he had run out of that church when they tried to bring local accountability to him. And I told everyone that two and a half years ago and five years ago, I told everyone. And I've just recently become acquainted with a certain Joshua Chavez, also known online as Service Christie. I also didn't know anything about him until very recently, just like I don't know much about Chris Rosebro or Justin Peters or Phil Johnson for that matter. I don't know Joshua Chavez terribly well. I've had a very long conversation with him recently about this, trying to figure out what ought to be done, what ought to be said, because we know far more than what has been publicly announced by FBC Sydney. They're claiming this is all about abuse of the prescription drug Xanax. No, that is not true. That is dishonest. And they know it, and we know it, and they know that we know it because I've recently been in talks with FBC Sydney leadership. Actually, it was after I had reached out to Tanya Rost privately, asking if she could give me more information because I was trying to confirm some details and I thought she might know. Well, what does she do? She forwards my private message to her asking for some information and also expressing my condolences because what I warned would happen have mercy (laughs) has happened. And what does she do? She forwards my message to Kyle Small with FBC Sydney. And he comes in guns a-blazing, private messaging me, telling me that I'm in sin and I need to back off and I need to let them handle it. And this is none of my business. And this is gossip and voyeurism even. Ooh, careful, careful. That is not so. To be fair, I think Tanya shared with him my request for information because she was hoping he would give me the information and that FBC Sydney would disclose all. And allegedly, I've been assured, I should say, that they will. I've been assured that they will in due time. But the trouble is, we have a situation where it is not just your business, FBC Sydney. Jordan Hall hurt and attacked a lot of people 
all over American Christendom. And if you would say, ah, you're not part of our church polity, then I would say he wasn't a part of the church polity of any of the churches that he went after the leadership of. So if that's your argument, you're a hypocrite. Also, too, Chris Rosebro, Phil Johnson, Justin Peters, you went after others to bring a kind of accountability, but you didn't warn us about Jordan Hall until just now. And now it looks very self-serving. It looks like you're just trying to cover your butts. And that is a disqualifying indiscretion, in my view. The double standard, the partiality, we are told explicitly in the scriptures, is unacceptable. It's unacceptable for a layperson. It is unacceptable, especially for a minister of God who is putting themselves out there, not just to a local congregation, not just to friends and family. You put yourselves out there for the entirety of American Christianity to see and to hear with the intent to influence all of the above, to correct, to teach all of the above. So whatever basis you would have to publish this video now, the fall of J.D. Hall, if you would say you had no grounds to rebuke him, to correct him, to warn your followers about him sooner, let's say two or three years ago, four years ago, whenever it was that you realized he was a dangerous person, that he was not above reproach, he was far below reproach, if that's an opposite, why didn't you say something sooner? If you have standing to say something now, why didn't you say something sooner? You know, I'm reminded in oil and gas of situations I have seen far too many times where you have operators tasked with, paid to maintain a facility, and something is not right with the equipment and the process. And you come into the scenario and you start asking questions. And especially for all the time I've been in maintenance, that's my job is to maintain, especially if the thing is broke and it ain't working. My job is to ask questions. Well, okay, for instance, how long has it been this way? When someone tells me years, and then I start asking, well, why didn't anybody do something about it? The answer I'm always given is because it would be too expensive, because we couldn't get management approval, because we were afraid we'd get in trouble for pushing it, because we needed to keep the facility running. And we were told, no, we can't shut down long enough to get this repaired, get this fixed. Tell me, Chris Roseborough, Phil Johnson, Justin Peters, that your video, The Fall of J.D. Hall, is not describing exactly that dynamic with regards to someone you call a friend and who you affirmed publicly for your followers and for his and for all your critics to hear and to see a long time ago because the show had to go on because as you reckoned, it would be too expensive to repair, to deal with. It would be too expensive to shut down or you were going to get pushback. You were afraid of getting in trouble with management. You saw this and you knew by your own admission for years and you said nothing and you did nothing, and that makes you culpable, that makes you complicit, that makes you an enabler, and that makes this video, in my view, admission that you were culpable 
that you were complicit, that you enabled this bad behavior. In fact, I can tell you for a fact that locally in eastern Montana, in Sydney, Montana, eventually in all of Montana, as Jordan became influential across the state as he got elected to the House of Representatives, in part because of the fame and even infamy, yes, that you helped him to get actively and passively. He capitalized on his relationship with men like you, and he used that to bully all his critics, all his opponents into silence. We're talking men, women, and children who have lived for years fearing for their physical safety. I kid you not. I was called over to a man's house to meet with him and his wife, and they told me, if we disappear, don't contact local law enforcement. Go directly to the FBI, because we don't know what he's capable of. Phil Johnson, in The Fall of J.D. Hall, admits to having told Jordan privately years ago that he was worried that Jordan might end up like a certain infamous Baptist minister from the early 20th century who actually was charged and tried, and yes, he was acquitted, but he was charged and put on trial for having shot a man dead in his office. He claimed self-defense. But the men who knew this minister were never so sure that it was actually self-defense because of his way of relating to people, because of his temper and his demeanor. Chris Rosebro, Phil Johnson, Justin Peters admit in this video that Jordan seemed almost to relish any disagreement, any excuse, even if he had to make up things, to go after people to destroy them. They compare him to Sherman going through the South during the Civil War, adopting a scorched earth strategy to bring the Confederacy to its knees. They say that's what Jordan was like, and they recognized it years ago. But now, now, now Jordan is fair game because he's been removed as a pastor, and he's been removed from protestia. And there's almost a fear in these men's eyes also as they talk about the possibility of Jordan trying to resurrect his ministry and his polemics, trying to return to the pulpit once he gets through rehab for Xanax. Is that why you couldn't touch him? Because he was not being disciplined by local leadership at FBC Sydney? They kept him in the pulpit, had his back, because it's a sad indictment on the dynamics here when you realize part of the reason why they didn't touch him is because you didn't. Tell me this, at what point did you men fly in to Sydney, Montana to meet with him and the board of elders or the deacons, whoever was tasked with keeping him accountable locally? At what point did you do that? Because you were very concerned that he might actually straight up murder somebody in his office, as you say, Phil Johnson. At what point did you fly in as fellow Christian ministers who had shared platforms together, who had affirmed one another, who had built your own audiences off of association with one another? At what point did you fly in to weigh in, even just privately, in the context of FBC Sydney. Perhaps you did, and perhaps you just don't mention it in this video, but I think you didn't, because I think that 
based on what else you say in the fall of J.D. Hall, this YouTube video, I think you would have told us in it if you had gone to that length of flying in and meeting with the leadership more broadly of that church. And if you read my articles from two and a half and five years ago, I told you a long time ago, or I told people in your circle who could have told you and should have told you and may have told you. Joshua Chavez, I may not have quite as much of an audience as you men, but Joshua Chavez had some 80,000 plus views on a video that he did years ago in which he reads significant portions, significant quotes from both of the On the Rocks blog articles I wrote about Jordan, in which I say, I had a former leader in his church call me after the first post to say, you were being too generous. I thought I'd be in trouble for having been too harsh. No, he told me I had been too generous. He's more a minister of Satan than he is a minister of God. And I wrote that into my second article about Jordan after the Sydney Herald quoted my first one. At what point did you dig in to find out whether that was true? You didn't have to take my word for it, but at what point did you fly in to talk with the local leadership there at FBC to find out what's actually going on here? And should we be associating ourselves with this man? And at a minimum, should we warn our own audiences, be careful not to act this way? If you gave such warnings and you just didn't mention them, you forgot to mention them in this video from Thursday, good. I'm glad. But again, I think you didn't because all you talk about is private conversations with him. And that is not Matthew 18. See, Matthew 18 is used in an abusive way by men like you. And you invert the warnings we have in the book of James and in the qualifications for overseers and deacons, which Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus. You invert the principle that an overseer and a deacon are supposed to be above reproach. You invert it by basically shouting down any layperson who would say, in fact, this man is not above reproach. 1 Timothy 5 does apply, but it says every charge against an elder is to be brought on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Are we going to interpret that figuratively now? Well, when it says two or three, you've got to scale that up. That's relatively speaking. So, you know, if the audience is millions, then two or three isn't enough. We need two or 3,000 witnesses or 20 or 30,000 witnesses. You had two or three witnesses all the way back when Ergen Kainer's son committed suicide. Don't tell me 1 Timothy chapter 5 applies here or that Matthew 18 applies here. Matthew 18 has a clear progression of efforts at rebuke, pursuing repentance and restoration, or removal. You tell us that you went to him privately, per Matthew 18. Per Matthew 18. Jesus doesn't say go to your brother privately, and if he blows you off, ignores you, keeps on doing the same thing again and again and again, that's it. You're good. Drop it. Leave it alone. Mind your own business. It's none of your business. No. If he ignores you, you come back with two or three witnesses. Well, here's three. Here are all three of you men. You had all the witnesses you needed. Chris Roseborough, Phil Johnson, Justin Peters. The three of you together should have, you should have flown into city Montana and sat down with Jordan and his elders and his deacons. You should have. And because it appears you didn't, or at least you don't tell us about it if you did, 
The testimony of the church and of the gospel is much the worse for it. And all the men who follow your examples and who put a great deal of stock in your opinions and your judgments, what you say is good, what you say is bad, those men are led astray by you for so long as you don't take responsibility for the part you played in creating this debacle. I think you know more than you're letting on as well. And if you don't, you display a remarkable lack of curiosity for someone you regarded as a friend. And I ask, if you regarded him as a friend, did you regard anybody else at FBC Sydney as a friend as well? Were you looking out for them and their families, them and their wives and their children, whose safety they feared for if they would ever stand up to Jordan? Maybe you did, but I see no evidence of it, not in what you attest to and not in your silence. More to come. More will be known. And again, ultimately, God knows. As with so many other things, God knows the truth. And what do the scriptures say? God will not be mocked. Man reaps what he sows. God will see justice done. And I would point out just a real quick anecdote. If anyone would say, oh, he hasn't sinned against you personally, it's none of your business. Well, then I would say, consider who Peter was sinning against when he showed partiality towards the circumcision party and stopped associating with the Gentile believers at Antioch. Was it none of Paul's business? Is it none of our business? If so, it's a curious thing that it's in our Bibles and that we're talking about it and that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. It's a curious thing. It's a very curious thing. These men love to bandy about accusations of gossip as a kind of gangsterism. The bully, those who would hold them to account into silence for fear that they might be in sin otherwise. No, 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 no. The Lord rebuke you. I got to leave it there though. That's all for this episode. Lord have mercy. Pray for those involved that God would be glorified and that repentance, genuine repentance, a broken and contrite spirit, he will not reject that genuine repentance would be the mark of all involved here and that there would be restoration. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. <laughs>